This episode is hosted by Jocelyn Byrne-Hool. Jocelyn is a product manager, founder, and investor. Today, she is an operating partner at Capital One Ventures, where she focuses on data, ML, fintech, and enterprise applications. In the past, she has held product and technology leadership roles for multiple startups and for big companies like Fannie Mae and Microsoft. Follow Jocelyn on LinkedIn or on Twitter under the handle at Jocelyn Byrne. Enabling authorization policies across disparate cloud-native environments is complex and can be a roadblock for software engineering teams. Open Policy Agent, or OPA, is a declarative policy-as-code approach to authorization that reduces security and compliance problems for engineering teams. The way it works is by translating business context into declared policy statements. These policy statements are then compiled into code and deployed as agents that can be injected into any process, such as an API gateway, Kubernetes provisioning service, or continuous delivery automation service. Styra created OPA and contributed it to the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, where it is a graduated project with over 130 million downloads to date. It's used at large companies such as Netflix, Atlassian, and Pinterest. The Styra Declarative Authorization Service, DAS, is specifically designed for OPA, and it includes the enterprise-grade ability to author policies preview impacts of new policies, and document all the history of old policies, all managed in a single pane of glass. Tim Henricks, CTO and founder of Styra, joins the show today to discuss how to make authorization policies easier to author, distribute, and monitor. He'll also share with us some of his thoughts about leading an open source software company. One note of disclosure to be aware of, Styra is a portfolio company of Capital One Ventures, the strategic investment arm of Capital One. Views and questions expressed in this podcast and related material are my own or those of my guest and do not reflect the views of Capital One Ventures or its affiliates. Thanks for coming to the show, Tim. I wanted to get started with some terminology questions, if we can start with that. Maybe you can speak a little bit about the difference between authorization and authentication. And then bonus follow-up question... Why are they named so similarly? <laughs> I wish I knew the answer to the second one. I, I don't know. Whoever it seems like terrible them, marketing. <laughs> yeah, it's it's always confusing. You know, even people who've like implemented this stuff, they they sometimes flip and flop because the words are so similar. Yeah. So authentication, I always describe this as like, how do I prove to a computer system that I am who I say I am? And usually that's solved with like a login and a password, maybe a thumbprint, face scan, you know, MFA if you're using your phone. So really at the end of the day, authentication is about, you know, who am I? Authorization is sort of the next phase of controls that you have around, you know, let's say how people interact with software, which is I go in, I've already authenticated, let's say it's my banking application. I go in uh, to that banking application and I'll, you know, click a button, view a report, try to withdraw money. Every one of those actions that I'm taking need to be authorized. You know, the software at the end of the day is going to check, like, can Tim withdraw money from his wife's account or not, right? That's an authorization problem. And so, you know, the way I like to think about it at a systems level is authentication, that might happen, sign in, that might happen once a day, once every 30 days. You know, I think I sign into my my Google accounts every 30 days. 
You know, authorization is happening on every button click, every page view, every list of results that I get, all of those results have to be authorized. So wildly different in terms of the implementation and how hard it is to implement in terms of how frequently the, the authorization problems get solved compared to the authentication problem. That's really helpful. I like that description, right, about every kind of touch that happens inside that application. How does policy fit into that world of authorization? Yep. So policy is an interesting word. You know, sometimes I'll call it policy. Sometimes I'll call it rules, regulations, best practices. All those things fall. They all sort of mean similar things in the sense that let's go back to the banking application example. You know, that piece of software, that banking app has to have some logic inside of it that makes a decision. Like, can Tim withdraw money from this account? Can he see the list of report for tax season? That logic is the policy that dictates exactly which actions I can take within that piece of software. So that's the policy, you know, we'll call those rules, those regulations, that logic, that policy, I'll use those all pretty much as synonyms, actually makes the decisions, right? Now there's software that, that's involved, that banking software has to like ask, hey, does Tim have, in fact, the permissions, does the policy say he's authorized to push that button or view that report? But the decision itself, we'll often call that policy. The logic that encodes that decision, we'll often call the policy. You know, I really love that description because I think sometimes the policy gives it such a mysterious software feeling when <laughs> when I'm talking to leaders about it. And really, it is this sort of just a short set of instructions, right? For you all, you have a couple of big use cases that you focus on. So help us understand how authorization plays a special role for a particularly, I would say, Kubernetes environments and the microservices environment. Those are two use cases. I'd love you to talk a little bit about the special problems of authorization in those worlds. That's a great segue in the sense that the way I sort of set up authorization in that description was you've got a banking application. And as I you know, log in and I, and I poke around at that application, there are all kinds of authorization decisions that need to be made. And, and I'll often refer to that as the application level of authorization that could correspond to microservices. By the way, authorization could take place within the application, even if it's a monolith, right? There's still an authorization problem that needs to be solved. And more generally, then I like to think about it as application level authorization. And so we've already described that. The second one, as you as you described, is like Kubernetes. I'll generalize that a little bit and, and talk about it as the infrastructure level of authorization. And here the idea is like, look, at the end of the day, authorization is fundamentally about people or machines taking action on software. And you know the software has to decide, is this action authorized or is it not? Is it, is it allowed, is it permitted or is it not? That same idea applies not just to the banking application world or, or any application world, but also to the infrastructure. Because at the end of the day, developers who are building and running those applications are also using software. They're using things like Kubernetes and AWS and CICD pipelines, and they're interacting with software all the time. And so at the infrastructure layer, the, the authorization problems that you want is that you need to solve are really focused on developers taking action, maybe they're upgrading their software, they're spinning up a new server, they're connecting a new network, they're attaching a new storage volume. And the question that needs to be solved then by that Kubernetes cluster, by that public cloud, by that CI/CD pipeline is, is this developer authorized to spin up that new server, that new network, or that new, new storage system? Or are they not? It's the same conceptual problem, authorization. It's just applied to a different set of software and to a different you know, end user at the end of the day. 
Interesting. So there's really, I've, you're triggering me to think a little bit about the personas and the jobs to be done here, right? Which is developers provisioning their environments, IT leaders, making sure that they're coordinating across multiple environments. And then at the application level, which I'm most familiar with, making it easier to for those applications to run correctly, authorize the right people, that type of thing. So users are getting an enhanced experience as well that's more accurate. I think the interesting thing is the complexity of working across, you know, there's so many policies out there and they're almost immediately out of date. And tell me a little bit about how OPA was intended to tackle this level of complexity. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about making the lives of developers easy, but also the kind of performance boost you get by running close to the infrastructure. Yeah, all good questions. We'll see if I can get them all. When we started Styra, the problem that we saw was kind of in part, you know, I, I gave you like a two level kind of, of introduction to authorization policy, which is applications and infrastructure. And it's true, but even within any one of those, you've got a multitude of different pieces of software. Like, you know, at the infrastructure level, we, we, we rattled off Kube and public cloud and CICD pipeline. But in reality, there are how many products at each of those levels? I mean, maybe there's just one Kube, but there are multiple public clouds. There are a large number of CICD pipelines. At the application level, you've got all kinds of databases, all kinds of service meshes, all kinds of gateways. And when we started the company, what we saw was that all of those different products and projects have a completely unique way of solving authorization, right? As a user, if I've got... 50 different pieces of software, I need to learn 50 different ways of solving, of like putting in place my own authorization policies. Even though the policy, the logic itself may be the same for all of them, the details about how I enforce that, how I implement it, how I, how I actually put those controls in place for each of my 50 different pieces of software is completely different. It's a different UI, it's a different API, it's even a different model. And so when we created OPA, it was really designed to solve this problem, to provide a unified way of solving policy and authorization across, you know, what we always say is a cloud native ecosystem. But really, you know, there's nothing all that unique about the cloud native ecosystem. So it's really about all software in the end of, at the end of the day. And in order to do that, there are some key things that you'll see embodied in this OPA project that are common across all of these different pieces of software. And so, you know, what OPA provides really is a, what I always like to describe as a file format. So there's a dedicated file format now that allows you as a, as a user to go in and say, here's the logic, here's the policy that makes authorization decisions. Now that logic is domain agnostic. It's not tailored for uh, CI, CD pipelines or applications or Kubernetes. It's, it's a general purpose policy language meaning you can apply it to really any of these different, whatever I said, 50 different pieces of software. And so that's like the first thing. It's a, it's a file format that says, here's how you express policy. And you can take those, those are files. Now you check them into CI, CD, do whatever you want with them. The second big piece was really a policy engine, a piece of software that you could feed those policy files. And then you could ask it, hey, is Tim authorized to withdraw money from account one, two, three, four, five? And then that policy engine would give you an answer. Yes, no, or you know, maybe there's a maybe. Or maybe yes, he can, but he has to sign this document, right? Those are all fine, fine decisions. So that's really the second piece. And obviously it goes hand in hand with the first, right? The file format doesn't really do you any good if you don't have a piece of software that knows and understands how to, how to use it. I sort of think of those going hand in hand, like at a high level with like, you know, image files and our, how our browsers can render them, right? Like oh, yeah. movie formats and how, you know, you just open up your browser and they start playing a movie, right? It's great. It has one job. <laughs> it just has this well, one well, job, right? one thing well, and it, that is policy <laughs> and authorization for sure. So 
individuals have an easier way to author policy. And then the nice thing is all of these applications simply come out to a policy engine and say, hey, run this piece of code. And you get back an answer of basically yes or no. Tim is allowed. He's not allowed. And so that kind of very, that simplification then takes all that weight out of the application into this authorization layer. Do I understand that correctly? And so like one of the things that kind of blows my mind is just talk a little bit. I think I, I don't know if I asked you this question Maybe I did before. You know, how does this work today? I'm a software developer in a large enterprise. I've got a bunch of applications I'm building. How do I do this today without OPA? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there are a couple of answers to that, and I'll there are a couple of answers to that. One of which is that I, like if I'm an application developer today and I'm not using OPA, typically what I'll do is I'll write a bunch of you know Java code here, Ruby code there, Go code over in another service some React code on the front end, and all together, those somehow implement your authorization policy. If some auditor comes along and says, hey, what is the policy that's implemented or some product owner, some product manager? The answer is, well, go look at that bit of React and that bit of Go and that bit of Ruby and that bit of Java and kind of figure it out. And so that's kind of the, you know, the norm, right? When we first talked about this, it kind of blew my mind because it's one of those things where you just accept it. You know, all these years I've been working in enterprise software and I have accepted this idea <laughs> that all these handshakes require another run of authorization with some other set of rules or language. And then if you have to redeploy, you can break that pretty easily <laughs> or mm -hmm. have to redo yeah. it. Yeah. Or heaven forbid you release a new feature. Now, like what's going to happen? Who knows? <laughs> yeah. That's just sort of accepted. I mean, for many years, that's just how it worked. And so... That was just to really helped me understand the power of OPA and what a great, like simple, elegant approach I, I thought it was. And then the next question is really help me understand in a couple of sentences, what is the difference between OPA and Styra's DAS? Yep. Right. So Styra DAS is uh, Styra's commercial product. I'll give you two answers. One of which is sort of architectural. And the idea here is that really OPA was designed, and I guess I didn't answer this question earlier, so I'll do it now. OPA is really designed because of how frequent authorization decisions need to be made, right? Every button click, every page view, you need to run OPA as close to the software as you possibly can, physically speaking. Like if your service is running on a public cloud, you definitely want OPA's running in that same public cloud, but not even just the same public cloud. You want it running in the same region, in the same AZ or availability zone. In fact, ideally you'd want it running in the same server, maybe even on the same process as the software that's actually requesting decisions, right? Because what happens if, if suddenly, you know, like imagine the reverse, imagine you're running OPA, you know, on the other side of the world from your application or your infrastructure doesn't really matter. And now suddenly that, you know, there's a, a temporary network disconnect between the two. Like your software is trying to ask OPA for an authorization decision and suddenly it can't, it can't get a decision. So what does your software do? I don't know. Is it going to just let it go? <laughs> probably not. It's probably be failing closed, which means right. your, your software, if it can't talk to OPA, becomes just a brick. Now, that's true of any authorization system. Not, nothing to do with, that's right. with OPA, obviously. So architecturally, you know, what you want is to sort of satisfy two different needs, one of which is you want to run OPA, in this case, as close to your software as you possibly can so that it's got high availability on low latency. But you also don't want to embed it into that software, right? You don't want to have it have that that policy littered throughout fifty seven thousand different places in your in your source code. And so that's why OPA was designed to run more so as an agent. So run it as a sidecar. You can even run it as a library. 
run it as physically close as you possibly can to that software. All right. So what that means from an architectural point of view is that you don't have one instance of OPA or five or 10. You could have hundreds or thousands of instances of OPA that are all running physically very close to your applications and your infrastructure. And so then what that begs the question of is like, well, how do you manage? How do you control? How do you you know, at the end of the day, what you're trying to accomplish is say, well, I would love to have like one conceptual way of writing policy and controlling policy and authorization across different applications and infrastructure. And so you need some sort of control plane, some sort of logically centralized way of managing all those OPAs, very common pattern in the cloud native space. And that's what Styra's declarative authorization service or Styra DAS delivers. It is that commercial control plane. It is synergistic with OPA itself. And so what you get from that is running all of these multiple OPAs close to the application, the server, whatever the case may be. And that cuts down on all the kind of hops, right? Network hops so that you actually get better performance. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. It's that, you know, I, I, you know, you'd say a Goldilocks zone, right? It's like, if it's too close to your software, then it's intermingled and you can't separate out what is the authorization policy, what is that logic from the actual app or the, the infrastructure itself. If it's too far away, then you end up with this poor availability, poor latency, and that turns your software into a brick. So OPA is intended to be that, that middle ground where it's architecturally flexible enough where you can, like I said, you can run it as a library, you can run it as a sidecar, you can run it on the same server as a daemon. You can go ahead and run it as a microservice that's separate from, you know, your applications or your Kubernetes API servers. But the point is that, and there are different reasons for different things. <laughs> but that, that sounds better in theory, probably, than reality. <laughs> well, no, I mean, sometimes it's the right thing. And so, like, when we chat with folks about, like, what are your policy needs? I always start with, like, what are the actual, what's the actual logic that you care about? Where are you hoping to enforce this logic? And then what is the data that your policy needs in order to actually come to conclusions, right? So here's a good example, uh, like go back to the banking app. Suppose that you've got a list of whatever records or accounts and the, the authorization logic that you want to put in place as a, as a developer, as a, as a product manager would be to say, the only people who can delete a, a resource or an account or a report is the owner of that account or the owner of that report. Well, who's the owner? right? Like for every account, for every report in that entire application, you've got to have a bunch of data that says, you know, this report is owned by Tim or by Jocelyn. And so that data is sizable. It is something that OPA needs to understand in some way, shape or form in order to make a good authorization decision. And so this boils down to like the data gravity problem, right? So if you were to try to say, hey, I've got a terabyte of data that OPA needs in order to make decisions, I'm going to go ahead and, and copy that terabyte of data in, into sidecars next to each one of my thousand application microservices. Like, forget about it. You're not going to do that. So there are cases, data gravity being a good one, where you actually do want to run OPA as a microservice. And it's not the end of the world. You just have to make sure it's, it's you know, horizontally scalable and that it's running the same AZs, you know, as physically close, like I said, to that app as you can. Takes a little bit more tending. That makes sense. Thank you. One of the questions, so you've got now hundreds of thousands of these OPAs running and you're in an enterprise environment. The complexity really kind of explodes out in terms of authoring and managing all of these policies in concert. So you've got your architectural benefits of DAS. Great. Got it. Check. But then I think about these IT leaders and business and product leaders, and there are tens of thousands of policies in every organization, some competing with each other. Mm. <laughs> and so there's kind of like, uh, you said Goldilocks, but I, I feel like it's a three wishes scenario. You're like, I wish I had one, all of this in one control plane. And they're like, oh, it's a bit of a gotcha. Because <laughs> then you see all your policies. 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. This is another good dimension. You know, when I when I'll talk about styro DAS, I'll usually say, you know, it's a control plane for sure. You need that architecturally. That's a good way of so first cut at understanding OPA versus you know what what we do at Styra commercially. But then the second level is like you know I think about policy lifecycle management. How do you author, test, deploy, monitor, record decisions within an enterprise, when, especially when you've got multiple teams running it with you know different applications, different infrastructure. You know how do you make sense of that? How do you put governance controls on that? You know like. That's the other second piece that the Styrodaz delivers is, you know, it'll do things like say, hey, you know, let's say that you're an enterprise and maybe you want to have, you end up with, you know, hundreds of Kubernetes clusters. Okay, great. Probably what that means is that you're, you've got different, you know, maybe lines of business or different teams responsible for some subset of those clusters, right? Each cluster has its own owner. That team you want to empower to say, hey, you know, you put the right policies, the right rules, the right regulations in place for your cluster because you know it. You know what the, what the applications are that are running on it. You know what your risk tolerances are. You know how sophisticated your end developers are and how comfortable they are with Kubernetes. And so, you know, we see that that happen that like you've got many clusters and, you know, the organization as a whole wants to delegate the administration of all those clusters to the extent that it can, but it still wants governance in place across all those clusters. And so that's, you know, obviously one of the features that we, we provide in Styrodaz, the ability to, to write sort of global policies that apply to many, many, many Kubernetes clusters or, or service mesh fleets or, you know, whatever the enforcement point happens to be. You know, DAS has special features for that IT manager who's maybe looking at, or business leader who's looking across multiple policies, and it has special features for policy authors. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's another good one, another good dimension there. So like when I think about policy authoring, I know that, you know, one of the nice things about OPA is that it gives you this text-based format for describing logic, for describing authorization policy. Some folks love it. They're just like, you know, give me VI or Emacs and I'll crack it open and I'll go to town and write, you know, policy that way. Other people will say, hey, you know what? I don't want to do that. I want to go and just have you give me a bunch of pre-built rules. I don't want to write the actual rules at all. I want to go to a GUI and pick one out of a list and put it in place. Some people are sort of in between. They're like, well, I don't really want to open a text editor, but I want a GUI to help me like guide me through writing policy. But, you know, maybe I've got sophisticated policies that I want to write or whatever. Other people will say, hey, you know what? You know, I, I think about this from a compliance point of view, like I care about, you know, MITRE or I care about PCI. And so what I want is a pre-built wizard that will just walk me through putting a bunch of rules in place that all correspond to things that I know about in those in those regulations. So like guardrails, just like building in the guardrails ahead of time so your users can't go off track. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And so the takeaway I always think about is like different personas want to author policy in different ways. They want different amounts of help. And so DAS was designed to help with all of those that we, we talked about, right? Like you can write it in a text editor. We've got a GUI where you can uh, write text-based policy in an I, like an IDE style. We've got a graphical policy builder that you can use. It helps you a little bit more than the, than the IDE. We've got pre-built rules for at least the, you know, the infrastructure cases where that makes a lot of sense. And then we've got you know, policy packs that cobble together a bunch of rules that all help you with PCI or MITRE or whatever it is. And so that's one of the key things that I see in the enterprise, which is that you've got, you know, policy is one of these things that it's a multi-stakeholder endeavor, right? It's, it's about security and developers and product managers and compliance all coming together and saying, here are the policies that we need to put in place. 
And I think that's part of why, you know, especially if you think just like littering your code with little bits of policy here and there is so hard. It's because it's not just a developer concern. It's a concern of product and security and, and compliance and so on and so forth. So by decoupling those and providing different interfaces for those different personas to interact with that policy in ways that they're most comfortable does certainly seem to help. I really resonate with what you're saying in terms of policy being a team sport. And I think in this new cloud world where you've really democratized a lot of management of not only your infrastructure, like in the Kubernetes case, but you've democratized access to data, different types of applications, business specific activities. You know, it's an interesting problem of having so many competing policies or policies that are simply changing so fast. The ability, you know, I, I, I think that's an interesting kind of part of the, the velocity of business that's been enabled through Cloud has also kind of amped up this problem statement of do we have the right policy running for today? And also, you know, I think the interesting thing about OPA2 is to helping develop, create velocity around redeploying new features, right? Because often policy changes will kind of come hand in hand with a new feature. You know, one of the things I was curious about is which of these, of all these features, which seem to resonate as you're working with large customers, I'm really interested in that large complex customers, which ones of these features are really the ones that are blowing people's minds or the ones they adopt the most? Yeah. Let me say one thing. And then if I forget, I'll, I'll answer the question directly. I think that you hit on something really powerful there, which is there are two kinds of velocity that we think about, right? One of which is developer velocity in the sense that, especially in the infrastructure case, those rules that people put in place with OPA, with, with Styrodaz, it may seem odd to say this, but it actually speeds up development. I'll say it again. You put rules in place to <laughs> stop things from happening, and it speeds up <laughs> development. That's right. And I think That's that right. it, it's funny to say it that way, but the same thing happens with like you know traffic signs, right? The, in the end of the day, overall, things are working better because there are rules and regulations that govern how like who goes first, and you're not hemming and hawing. I know when the green light is green, I get to go, and it, when I get to stop, then I got to stop. But like in the developer world, I think the reason that it goes faster is because developers want to know immediately if something that they are trying to do is not going to work. Right? It's immediately so, going to break. It's just immediately going to break. Yeah. Yeah. It's immediately going to break. And so the way I, I always think about the development process is the sooner you can give developers feedback about like, no, you can't deploy this ingress this way, or you can't run a random binary from the internet on our production cluster, the sooner they find that out, the better, because then they, they don't go down a bad path for you know hours, days, weeks. They figured out earlier. Moreover, you know, I think one of the cool things is that when you have an automated process in place that's saying no, like not only does, uh, are you, do you obviate the need for a person to check that, but also like as a developer, I don't care if a machine tells me no a thousand times. Like I am not going to bat an eye. I'm just going to keep trying. And so it's a good way to learn very quickly. And there's not, you know, there's, there's no, there's no issues about, oh, I got a bad code review or whatever. So it's like lower friction. It's lower friction yeah. and less for developers to do. I have to say, every time I see a company that's like, it's policy is code. And there's a lot of companies kind of using that terminology. My heart always sinks a little bit because often it's sort of like, we're just going to ask the developers to do more things. We're going to add more to the checklist, right? <laughs> Whatever it's like as code is the like, is the process that I hear. I'm always like, ooh, are we just adding more things, right? More code reviews, more, you know, places. And so in this case, I really do think it helps developers get moving faster and get over some of these friction points that really should have been automated a long time ago. So I love that you're talking about that and double clicking on that because so many, you know, there's just a lot of companies that are wanting to help developers. And this really does help them with in a very like obvious pain area, and it helps them in a really efficient, as you said, depersonalized way, <laughs> right? Which is super handy. 
just popped into my head the the other just going back to like this whole notion of policies code and pulling those policies the reason OPA was invented in the first place is having this domain agnostic policy language and file format means that if you've got a policy enforced at the Kubernetes admission control level, that's great. Why? Because developers can't deploy code they shouldn't. You can take that same policy, pull it out of Kube now, because it's written in you know, OPA's language, and enforce it in the CI pipeline. Why is that helpful? Because now, if as a developer, I'm not sending code straight into my Kubernetes cluster, I'm sending it into a CI pipeline first, then it gets deployed, then I can get those checks even earlier before they get rejected at the Kubernetes cluster. I could take that same policy file and run it on my laptop so that I don't even have to bother opening a PR in my CI pipeline or even worse, waiting until the Kubernetes cluster gets a hold of it. And now I can basically run these policy checks as if they're like unit tests. I can in almost real time, I could pull this all the way. We haven't done this yet, but we could pull this all the way into the editor so that as you're typing (laughs) the, the Kubernetes manifest or whatever, you're getting real time feedback about, oh, you just put something in there that we're not going to let you deploy. You're like, you're on track. You're on track to succeed. You're falling off track. Yeah, you get real time. And this is Rego you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Rego, that's the name of the policy language. Yeah, so, you know, you've got that file format. It's just a file format. You know, I can send it to you in an email or you can download it out of a Git repo. You can take that file format and run it in an OPA anywhere you like. And so the idea is, you know, shift left that enforcement as far as you can into that developer workflow so that, they find out about you know things that are not going to work as early as they possibly can. I think that's amazing. And Rego, I was curious when you sort of started the idea around OPA, was Rego always going to be hand in hand with that? Or is that something you evolved? I'll tell you a little story about Rego. <laughs> okay. the, the idea behind OPA was really, you know, the way I described it was we were going to solve that. We're going to provide a unified solution to policy and authorization. That was the mandate. That was the idea. We knew then that we needed a policy language that was not coupled to any of those existing. It couldn't be a Kubernetes thing. It couldn't be a public cloud thing. You know, it had to be somewhat agnostic of all of those. And so those two always went hand in hand, right? Like the notion of OPA, the only way, in my opinion, to solve the problem of unified authorization is to provide that file format, which encodes that language that you use to express those policies. And the reason is because it has to be agnostic. It has to be some kind of lingua franca for policy specifically. That's helpful. That's interesting. And then do you have any advice for those who are like, if they're getting started writing policies with Rego, is there something different about a declarative language like this that from other languages you might be used to? Yeah. One of the things about declarative languages, I mean, maybe one of the main things is that you don't get side effects. So you don't get to increment counters. That's not a thing you can do. And that seems very basic, but it also... Like it was designed to make the language something that you kind of look at and ideally, you know, maybe if you enhance some of the punctuation that you could like read it off in English, like this thing is allowed if the user is Tim and the action is a read and the you know resource name is foo123 or whatever it is. So that was kind of how it was designed that you declare those rules that make up the policy that make decisions around what you're authorized to do. What you don't then have to do is worry about all the long list of performance things that you would typically need to worry about in an imperative language. I mean, I think a lot of imperative languages are complicated by the fact that you can't just write down the logic you care about, right? You write down the logic you care about, you know, that takes an hour, and then you spend 10 hours, you know, making it run quickly. I don't know what the numbers are. I made something up. But no, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and so one of the premises behind any, I would probably argue any declared language, but certainly Rego was 
let you make the syntax mirror as close as we reasonably can, you know, English level policies that you might find in legislation. And so that was like priority one. And priority two was like, do whatever we can to automatically deal with the performance optimizations that otherwise you as a programmer would have to go off and do. I think that's so thoughtful. That's like such a thoughtful component, that performance part, like taking that off the table really allows this very simple, clear way of writing, you know, human readable declared policies. And I just think that's a very interesting component of the DAS and OPA. One of the things I'd love to ask you a little bit about, if you're willing to share is, you know, it's a really powerful DAS is so powerful. You clearly have spent a lot of time thinking about that like large complex enterprise from an architectural perspective, from a user perspective. What's next in the product roadmap? You know, where would you like to take this product next to the extent you're, you know, thinking about that now? You may just be thinking about tomorrow and all your tasks for tomorrow. But as you're thinking about that, where is enterprise going, especially these cloud native complex organizations? Yeah, well, I, I think there are a few things to mention here, one of which is we have the, you know, I think we do what a lot of companies will do, which is at some level we talk to, we've got a bunch of users, <laughs> customers, right? They're using things all the time. They're telling us where they think things need to go. And so we're doing that. But what we also have is the open source community, right? Like we're watching what they're doing. We're chatting with them, helping them along. And as we see trends show up there, then we go ahead and think, hey, you know, there was... Recently, a CloudFormation or, or AWS released a hook into CloudFormation. And then we did, you know, in the, in the OPA world, we put together some work that says, here's how you hook OPA into CloudFormation so that you can do, you know, put policy guardrails in place for AWS, which is great. Very similar to how we do with HashiCorp, right? Like we just recently talked about and released this work in Styrodaz around guardrails for Terraform. Like we had that for a while, but just recently HashiCorp opened up a Terraform cloud to have that same kind of hook so that we can go ahead in there. So, you know, sometimes what we do is we just watch what other vendors are doing and we say, hey, you know what, that's a powerful place for us to integrate OPA. And then we can go ahead and provide that and a bunch of the the stuff around that and bake it into DAS. And so those are two of the things that we're excited by. But then there's also, we just announced this Styra Run product where for the first time, we're actually running OPA for folks in the cloud. So that's pretty exciting. Up to now, you know, we've had that very clear separation between OPA is the open source, you run it at the edge and Styra DAS has been that control plane. And now this Styra Run product is really designed to be, we'll run OPA for you in the cloud as a managed service. And then it make you know, the idea being it's easy to offload your application authorization decisions to Styra Run. Any technical surprises as you've moved your service into a fully cloud-based services? Well, Styra DAS has always been fully cloud, running the cloud. The interesting bit about Styra Run has just been, you know, the things that we always knew, right? Um, that you need geo-replication, you need really low latency, you need, you know, highly optimized memory and tenant and sharing. So I don't think we've run into anything that was surprising as we've been working through this, but... Just the regular slog of things, that known items. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The regular, yeah. regular known I mean, problems. Right. And, and this is something that obviously we've been talking with people about for a long, long time, for years. So it's, I think once we decided to do it, then we felt like we had a pretty good handle on what was going to be required. So... I want to double click on two ideas here that you just struck on. One is I had a question about integration and one is about leverage your open source roots. So let's talk a little bit about integration patterns because you're right. You know, the part I see the most is the policy authoring and the dependency on the input data, which is all like immaculate and perfectly organized, <laughs> which it never is, right? 
So just help me understand, like, if, you know, a big customer signs up, like, how do you start these integrations and implementations? And, you know, what are some of the keys of success for an implementation for you? First, a, a comment sort of overall, like one of the powerful things about this cloud native ecosystem is that just architecturally, we're seeing this move toward authorization being basically being a hook that's available in cloud native software. And so you can plug things in like OPA to it, right? Like Kubernetes does this. They've got a great pipeline for authentication and authorization for admission control. And so when you're running OPA, you're hooking OPA into that API server. There's no way to circumvent it. We're not running a proxy or something in front. Like you don't need to. And I think that architecturally, that's becoming a pattern that we see within the cloud native ecosystem. Service meshes do this. We've just gone through Hashi and, and AWS doing this. So we're starting to see databases do this too. So there's more and more of these software components. They're just making authorization a pluggable feature. And that's obviously powerful for OPA and, and Styro. Yeah, that makes life a lot easier. That's great. Yeah. And so when we're working with enterprises, often what we'll say, you know, we'll tell the story that we've been telling here today, which is, hey, there's authorization everywhere within the applications, within the infrastructure. It's just everywhere. Like, and, and we help you with all of it. So, and people love that, right? Because why wouldn't you? But at the end of the day, to make progress, what we always say, and shout this from the rooftops, like pick a pain point, you know, pick that application where you already know that you're in pain and you need to factor the authorization logic out of it or pick that infrastructure technology, whether it's Kubernetes or Terraform or whatever, where you know you need to put guardrails in place, go find that team that owns Kubernetes or that owns that application and understand directly, like, what are your pain points? Do Does decoupling authorization from your application or putting guardrails in place for your infrastructure, are those things that will help you address those pain points? And if so, then roll it out. And so you get one win that way, whether it, it doesn't matter what the area is, and then you've learned a lot about how to use OPA. You've learned a lot about how to use Styrodaz. You've got a great story to tell and explain. Like, here's how we got this to work in my, you know, application one or in my Kubernetes for the organization. And then you go and you say, okay, what's the next one on the list? And then you repeat. And that's the way I think to go from, so it's kind of like a bottoms up kind of approach to getting authorization controls in place everywhere. If you're solving concrete pain points, then you know nobody's going to stop you. If you're trying instead to say, hey, as an organization, everyone's going to do it this way, that's going to be a very, very long road. I love that as a product manager and a technology person, right? That kind of really discreet use case as the starting point. For me, I call that the race car strategy. You just pick one car to beat. And then you pick the next car to beat <laughs> until you're at the front of the pack. <laughs> because I do think that these efforts to create some kind of master set of rules always just kind of fall down under their own weight, right? And that's actually a great kind of segue into talking a little bit about the business strategy behind Styrodas. And you did say, I did have to say that little bit of a tease there. You said there was a good story about when you were thinking about starting this effort and building OPA and you were thinking about Rego. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So tell me a little bit about that sort of origin story. You're there. You've got your pizza box. You've got your partners. You're <laughs> right? Yeah. All right. I'll do the origin story. The thing about Rego is a cute little technical anecdote. So if, if we have time, remind me and I'll, I'll do that one. I want to hear that right now. That's what this whole show's about. Technical anecdotes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. How about we start with the origin and then we go okay. to the, the radio. Okay. So before we started the company, we were at VMware. So we had ended up at VMware through the Nasira acquisition. And it's funny, in the early days of Nasira, it was really a 
a policy networking company. That was the idea. It was like, let's write some policies that govern where packets can flow and where they can't. And then from there, you know, what came out of it was virtual networking, just because it was easier for people to consume and to write. And then, you know, obviously it went off to software-defined networking. So while we were at VMware, some of the clients we were talking to knew that we were some policy folks. And they were like, hey, by the way, you know, we're a bank or we're a tech firm. And like, we've built these policy systems to manage all our policies. And like, why are we doing this? We don't want to do this. Hey, can you guys like go off and do something? We'll give it a whirl. Like, we don't want to be in the business of building and maintaining a policy system. Like, that's not what we should be doing. So we spent a couple of years at that point building out a project inside of OpenStack at the time. This was nine years ago at this point. So it was a while back. So we went into OpenStack and we built it. It was called OpenStack Congress. And, you know, we, we spent some time on that. And then what we decided was, look, this policy problem is really bigger than OpenStack. It's bigger than VMware. Every company on the planet is going to have this problem, especially taking into account the fact that all these companies are embracing these cloud-based, these cloud-native approaches to building software. And when you do that, you've got way more software components, right? Like you're talking about going from monoliths to microservices. You're talking about far more dynamic environments. You know, you've got Kubernetes spinning up and down instances of your microservices all the time. You've got incredible reach in terms of where you're deploying all of these software application instances. So you're at VMware, you're building this, you've got background, right, in the whole policy world that you've been thinking about and then from a network perspective for a long time. When you thought about open sourcing this, tell me a little bit about how that strategy came into play. That's a good question. For me, there was never a doubt that we had to open source the policy language that became OPA, right? For the simple reason that like policy is so crucial to so many different parts of the business. Like I'm imagining going, like imagine you're a 10 person startup and you go to some, you know, the, the largest bank on the planet and you're like, hey, you want to write all your policies in this proprietary language that only we have <laughs> control over? Like, is that going to work? No, I just couldn't bring myself to believe that would ever work. You know what I'm really interested in knowing is, so you're like, you know, I love it, right? I'm all about open sourcing. You're going to open source this. Of course, it makes perfect sense for your business model. Did you know kind of the shape of DAS at the same time? Because it's such a full featured enterprise offering. A lot of times open source, I see like a great idea. And then they're kind of struggling for that enterprise product layer. This seems much more heavily weighted towards that enterprise product. Was that part of the plan from the beginning? Yeah, I'll just finish the, the thought, which I, I did half of it, which was we couldn't imagine the company succeeding if we hadn't open sourced OPA. But the other side of that was that if we open sourced OPA, we'd have everybody in the world with expertise in all kinds of different domains contributing to the language, contributing to the engine, bringing use cases that you know we wouldn't have envisioned or thought of. And so like I saw it both ways is that like that is a necessary component of not only necessary, but it's wildly beneficial to have this thing owned by the world, owned by the community. OK, yeah. Was Daz in there from the beginning? The answer is yes, conceptually. So the other part of the backstory here is Timu, one of the founders, was the chief architect at Nasira. So Nasira was this distributed network, software-defined networking. They had the same kind of problem that we did, which was they needed this piece to run at the edge because it turns out networking is a highly needs high availability and high performance as well. But they also needed that centralized control. And so we always knew coming into the authorization space that that was the architecture overall that we needed. We needed this data plane, as the networking folks like to call it, that runs at the edge, that's OPA, 
it became OPA. And then we needed that logically centralized way of controlling all of those OPAs. And so, you know, that was, you know, in part why Timu and I got together was that we knew that that was the right technical architecture to solve authorization from the very beginning. You know, it's really helpful because it, it really is a mature offering from an enterprise perspective. And of course, its integration, its handshakes with OPA are so clean. So that makes perfect sense. And I hope other young founders who are thinking about an open source endeavor. I think it's one of the things that's interesting about what you're saying is you were thinking about the enterprise from the beginning. And that doesn't make you any less virtuous as an open source leader <laughs> to have that in mind, right? Ahead of time. And so one of the questions I had for you as an, as a leader in open source is you know, how should investors, how should buyers, when they're evaluating the health, a lot of times I get asked, well, how do I know if it's a good open source project underneath that enterprise offering? So a lot of commentaries out there, but I'd love to get your opinion on like, what do you look for when you're like, oh, let me check out and see if this is a solid project. What are the kinds of things you look at? Yeah. Well, there are a couple of good signs that it's a healthy project. You know, one of which is that you've got a broad contributor base. I don't know if I'll say anything uniquely interesting here, but Broad contributor base, right? That's active, right? So you're seeing contributions go in, you're seeing bug fixes go in, you're seeing new features released, you're seeing a good, you know, release cadence. So that's on the sort of developer side. If I think about users, what I always think is like, I want to hear not from the people who built it, how they think it should be used. I want to hear from the users, how they were actually using it. You know, where are the rough edges? Where did it work really well? Where did it, you know, sing? And so like looking for end users who are active in the community, who are maybe they're on Slack and you can ask them, or like for us, we always make sure that we encourage people to give talks at like KubeCon or any other sort of open source summit so they can share what they've learned. And, you know, if you've got folks who are leading lights in the industry, giving talks at premier conferences about, you know, giving detailed descriptions of how they used an open source project and why it's been successful and then I think, you know, you've got a project is probably quite healthy. Is there like a cultural aspect to your open source project? You know, some are crankier than others. Some are more fraught than others. <laughs> How do you kind of set the culture for your open source community? Yeah, culture is a good one. I mean, I think it's, well, it, I mean, it goes without saying it's, it's super crucial for any group of folks, right? Whether it's open source or commercial a company or a you know, collaborative thing. In terms of setting the culture, I'm a believer in you got to walk the walk, right? So, you know, however you engage with your community, you know, other people are going to copy, especially the founders, the maintainers, the creators. And so like what you want to do if you're certainly if you created and maintain the project is you should be on Slack. Maybe not every day. Maybe you can't do that. But like you should be on Slack and interacting with folks. You should be, you know, helping them. You know, they, you should be thinking about doing, you know, that, that customer success function in the enterprise world, that should be the open source team on Slack or Discord or, or whatever right, right. it is, you know. So part of your job in open source is not just to write code. I think healthy open source projects especially have those core teams that are writing code for sure, but they're also writing docs. They're also interacting and answering questions on Slack or Discord. They're giving talks yeah. in community forums, going to meetups even, right? And obviously there's a scaling question there that you know you can do less and less of that. As <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what I'm getting at. Like you have these leaders who get very focused on these technical problem sets, which are the very delightful. I get that. <laughs> but then there's this problem of bringing people into the fold and keeping that healthy like influx of new users, new contributors, which I think is kind of an interesting tension. You've got these super technical people who want to go deep on the tech, <laughs> 
But then if you keep doing that, then you end up with not enough new people coming contributors. So it's interesting. And I I think it's just such a lively project. It's something to be really excited about. I'm just curious. I work with a lot of MBA students here and there, and there's a lot of hand wringing about whether they should go to a startup or go to a large company. And I was just curious, you know, I'd love to be able to tell people that there's benefit to being in a big company when you come as a founder. You know, it's not a detriment to have that big company background. So I guess my question is, what did you find that you brought with you from the large company experience? Yeah. At the end of the day, when you're a startup, you're going to have to sell to other companies. If you've only ever worked in a startup, it's going to be very hard to imagine what it's like in a big company. And that's you're often going to sell to. Like if you're selling to other startups, okay, that's great. But what, 90% of startups fail or 99 or whatever that number is. So that's helpful. But I think... You're living in a small startup, so you can imagine what that is like. It's harder to imagine what it's like at a big company unless you've already worked at one. Interesting. So that would be one thing, just like that basic knowledge of like, yes, we've spent two years designing a new product and it didn't get really or whatever, right? Like that. And and yes, I have to go through, get three levels of approval to purchase this piece of software. And I really can't even do that. I had to go get my manager. And and so like, you know, that kind of socialization, that kind of. You're you're less dismayed. You have less dismay when you're confronted with (laughs) these timelines. (laughs) And it's, it's just, it's just like empathy for your users, for your customers at the end of the day. And I think it's just very hard to understand that. Now, now that's like just very, you know, vague and kind of squishy. But I think the biggest difference that like somebody who's worried about, like, should I go into a big company or a small company first, if they eventually want to found a company is just that, like, I think you do want experience, especially in like working in big companies. Great. If you can work in the area that that's somewhat related to what you're going to go found a company around. And obviously that's hard to know, but like if you spend a bunch of time in marketing in a big company, then when you leave, you know, it'd be great if you could sell a marketing product because you know what that is like and what procurement looks like, what it looks like to bring in a new piece of software and train everybody up and so on and so forth. I love that because you had this theme of policy, right? In your regular work life. And then it kind of kept your thought process going and you had a domain to extend into. That's actually great. I'm going to use that. Tim, I really appreciate your generosity to come on the show. Great comments. I've learned a lot about Syra and look forward to talking more in the future. Thank you so much for having me, Jocelyn. This was fun. As always, I'm always happy to come back. Great. Thanks so much.